Greetings in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program, His Word, where we look into the Word of God. Today's title is I'd Rather Trust God. Our brother, Muzigai Setube, is delivering the Word of God. I trust that it will change your life and increase your faith in God. Be blessed. Just briefly as a narration, when you read through the book of Ezra, it comes immediately after the book of Second Chronicles or the book of Chronicles, which is an analysis or an epilogue of how the kings of Israel ran their life and how God responded to the way they were actually welcoming his presence in the in the nation of Israel, either Israel or Judah. And uh, when you follow through the book of the Chronicles, you see a number of things that define who God is to the people of Israel. And uh, some of these things will tell you how pleased God is when people do what he wants. And at other times you will see how God is displeased when the people do the other way. And sometimes God will punish them harshly. Sometimes the punishment will be light. It depends on the time. Sometimes also on the gravity of the offense that the people are doing towards God. One of the prevalent sin that the people of Israel would find themselves trapped and trapped in would be allowing the worship of foreign gods in their midst. And this was received or it came into their life because of uh, their life being different. Put differently is because of them liking the, stand the other lives of other nations around them. When God told them to leave Egypt, he had clear instruction through Moses and the other prophets that he wants them to be pure. He even gives them instruction not even to marry or intermarry with other nations, foreign nations. Basically because he knew that once they allow that in their midst, then they, it will dilute the purity of his existence among them and it would divert and confuse them to now yearn, look for other gods and live according to the precepts of the other gods and if you follow the scripture the biggest thing that makes God so angry is when you tend to worship other gods and he even says in the book of Exodus that he's a jealous God he doesn't want to be mixed with anybody. He doesn't want to be he doesn't want to share glory with anybody. As if this is not the only sin that they were doing. They would offer sacrifices to the other gods. Sometimes some of the kings would even offer their kids to the other gods. Sacrifice children to other gods. Not when God values life so much. But they will still do it. And so that would attract the wrath of God in its intensity. Towards, uh, I think after about uh, over 500 years, a prophet came about. One of them is uh, Jeremiah. 
He mentions to them that one time you will be taken into exile because of what you are doing. Talks to the people of Judah. He says, because you've, you've lasted after other gods, you will be taken into exile for 70 years. You'll be living in foreign land. And this happened when Nebuchadnezzar became king in Persia. In Babylon. He came, he attacked them, and he took them captive. And he took them to Babylon. When you read through the book of Chronicles, actually it mentions that there was a serious selection of the people that were taken into exile. It was key people, key groups that were taken into exile. There was a remnant that remained, but it was really ineffective. They could not pursue the values of the Jews. So when they were in exile, then they were there for 70 years. They realized, that's when, the Bible says, that's when they actually woke up to realize what sin they'd done to God. When the prophets were telling them that if you continue serving other gods, doing this and that, God will be angry with you and will take you to captive. It didn't make sense to them. But only when they were taken to Babylon, that's when they woke up. Yes, when they were there, at times they will fall into the trap of worshipping the gods of those people in Babylon. We remember the great story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was that time. They are one of the fellows, that some of the fellows that existed during the time when they were in Babylon. There, that's when, this, when these three boys, four boys, decided to take a stand. It's because they'd been given values at a young age of what it means to worship God and what God is, able, is capable of doing. And now, when they were there, they maintained their, their worship, their fellowship with God to the point that they wanted to demonstrate to the kings. How strong were these guys? They were very brave. When everybody else that had been taken from Judah and Israel believed that they had no way out, these guys stood up. After 70 years, God intervened. Another king came after many kings, after the king of Babylon. One of them was the, was the king of Persia, King Cyrus. King Cyrus became a vessel to be used of God. Evidently, it must have been time that the people of Israel now reflect, reflected and had realized that all, the only thing that would take them out of the land of captives would be to go back to God. So they were pleading with God, praying to God, and he responded as he did when they were praying to him while they were in Egypt. That's when now God started intervening. And his intervention here began with him touching the king of Persia, King Cyrus, to release them back to, to, to their land. This king... He did that actually in fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, which had been given 200 years ago. Which means when he made, when they were captive, when they were taken captive, it was about 130 years after his prophecy. Then at the 70 years, then this king was touched by God. 
release the people of Israel to go back to their, to their land. And then he issued a decree that the people of Israel, the people of the, of the Jews, can actually go back to if they wish. I like that. He said, if they wish. Which means now it became their decision. If you want to go and you want to remain. Actually, if you read through the chapter, the book of Ezra, you do pick that at the time of Ezra, who was also a teacher in the word of God or in the law of Moses, there were some people that again went out. I will mention it, I think, in some, somewhere in my script, in my uh, narration. So these people went back. But when they went back, because they had awoken to the reality of what going against God would do to them, they were looking for God with everything, with their heart and everything that they could do. That's a good character that resembles a Christian. Once you repent, you've made a decision. Move in the decision. So these people went there. Among them, the Bible cites Jeshua and Zerubbabel. When they got there, they knew that for us to come back here, it means we have to reconnect with God. They were so excited, they decided, you know, let's build altars. That was the first thing. So chapter 3 will tell you about them building a structure together with their associates. This structure was an altar where they would actually celebrate and worship to God. Celebrate their return to Israel. Once they did that, then the next stage was to actually rebuild the temple. These were people that were working from memory of what the presence of God can do. They wanted to rebuild and restructure or return everything back to where it was before they were captured. Because they understood now that it is important for God to be amongst us. They understood that it is, it is important for us to also offer sacrifices to God. Hallelujah. I think I like these characters. Because they pushed this community that had returned back to the land of the Israelites. They pushed them to actually realize that it is important to reconnect with God. Hallelujah. And when you read through chapter 3, verse 10 to 12, actually to say to tell you that there was a celebration, a big celebration. Some were singing so loud because they were so excited. Others were crying so loud. The, the, these verses will tell you that some were crying because they were seeing the foundations of the temple of God being built. Just at the construction of the foundations, that triggered jubilation in them. Because it gave them a sense of belonging. It brought back to their presence, God to their presence, to their lives. Hallelujah. I can imagine, sometimes I've replayed, many times replaying this situation to see really how much joy must have been there. And I can see they were reconnecting with others, the remnant that was there. The people, the same, receiving their friends, their family members, and their, their prophets, the system coming back to structure, them coming together as a nation. What a jubilation. You will 
remember that these people that had remained in the land of the Israelites, these people were already governed by appointees of the kings of Persia. They were under management and governance of them. So they were watching them. Even though these were released back to their land, the governors that had been appointed, some were appointed among them, from among them. Actually, when you read the book of Chronicles, some were among were selected from the people of Israel and were appointed governors or trustees of these kings of Persia. There were some that were not happy when there was this constant building. When these people returned, they felt threatened. They were not happy. They even wrote a letter back to the king of Persia. First of all, they started frustrating them. Then eventually they wrote a a letter to the king. Saying, yeah, yeah, that these people of Judah, they are rebuilding the temple. They are regrouping. These people, once they have regrouped, they will cause problems. They will stop paying taxes. They will stop worshipping uh, or, 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 or um, paying uh, um, uh, allegiance to the kings of Persia. They are a rule to themselves. And that king of Persia, Cyrus, decided to stop. They stopped and they couldn't continue. That stopped the jubilation. That brought a sense of dismay. But thank God, because those people that were excited did not stop calling for the interventions of God. They continued to pray. After about 20 years, another team came. Actually, it cites the governor of um, Transurates, Euphrates, sorry. A governor of Transurates who, who had been appointed by King Dairas at the time, who was a, another king after the King Cyrus. This guy started seeing the people of Israel. They were silently now rebuilding again, which means they wanted to see the temple completed. So they went silently and started rebuilding. And they were citing that this project was started some years ago. This guy decided to write again to the king. Now he's writing to King Tyrus. He's telling them that, okay, these people are building again. And we've approached them. And they've cited that this is a project that started some time ago. And they they are building it to worship their God. One thing that I like about this man, he said he was told, as he was told by these people, that no, the king of Persia had actually instructed us to come and he had allowed us to come and build our temple. This guy wrote back to the king and mentioned the same thing. He said, I don't know about it, but can we do something? Can we go and check on the records if this is evidenced? And they did go back. The King Dairas ordered that the records be searched. And indeed, yes, it was found that the records were there. King of Persia had authorized the rebuilding and the return of the people. So he allowed them to build. 
they built and they established themselves. Another king, king of Ezra, I mean king of Persia, king Artaxerxes, came again. After a number of years again, these people were now worshipping. Remember, there are some people that still remain because the, the instruction of the decree had said, if you like, you can return to your land. When they backpacked, those that went back to the land of the, of the Israelites, they found the remnant, those that had been left when they were taken into exile. They joined them. But others remained in the land of Babylon. Then some among those, there was Ezra, who was the teacher of the law of Moses. For the kings of Persia to allow the children of Israel to go back to, the land, to their land, it means they recognized that they have a God that they are worshipping. And they were giving them latitude and they were making them free to worship their God. So the people that remained in Babylon continued to serve God and demonstrated that God is alive. Ezra is one of them. He was a teacher of the law of Moses. Too, so much so that he was recognized by the king himself. So as the king was seeing things happening, miracles happening, testimonies happening, seeing the, the, the God of these people, he decides now to send Ezra with a strong instruction. Go to your land and make sure that the people that are in your land adhere to the laws of God. He must have seen something about the life of the people. He must have seen something about the God of the people. This is a king who must have known that there once has been Nebuchadnezzar, who had an interaction with God to the point that he was taken to the wilderness and lived like an animal to eat grass. It was there in the history of Babylon. He must have seen how God intervened for the people of Israel. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was in the records in that country. So he knew who God was. He knew what God these people were worshipping. So when he sent Ezra, he sent him with a stern instruction. Go and make sure you teach the people. And he was excited. He went there. Ezra became so known, so popular, and he organized the people. He reinstituted, he reestablished the people of Israel. He reminded the people about the law, of, the law of God. I was not reading the whole chapter because I know you will, you will, you will, you will find time. It's very long, but please find time to read the book. It's only ten chapters. But what I've picked up from what I've narrated is just how God deals with His people. I've said the topic or the title is "I'd Rather Trust God." What I've seen here is when you really allow sin in your life, one of the lessons that I picked, sin can bring sorrow into, sorrow into your life. These people allowed the other gods to infiltrate their life. They started mingling with them. They started worshipping their gods. They started sacrificing. They started sharing land and everything with these people that were foreign and God had strictly told them not to do it. But they did. To God that is sin. And they were therefore taken to exile to learn 
what God's punishment can do. That's when they learned what the pain of worshipping God in a foreign land can take you to be. You don't get free. They would hide, they would be killed, they would be punished, all sorts of things. Because there was force for them not to worship the God that they knew. Sin can bring sorrow into your life. It came because of the evil deeds. But so, if you read the book of Jeremiah, chapter 8, verse 9, it will tell you that the wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and trapped since they have rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do you have? If you allow sin to rule your life, if you follow sin, the way of sin, it will ruin your life and bring sorrow. The book of Samuel chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 to 5, tells us about David and Bathsheba, the, 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 the story about David and Bathsheba. It tells you what happened about that. And when you go down to chapter 12, from around verse 10 down through 25, it will tell you about the sorrow that came into David because of the sin that he allowed into his life. There are many other examples that will show you among these are the kings that I've mentioned that were ruling the people of Israel. One of them is Manasseh, King Manasseh. They regretted because of the sorrow that came upon them. Ultimately, they were punished to spend seven years, 70 years in a foreign land. And sin is so crafty. The Bible in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 it tells, you, it tells us that it entangles. If you allow it, it entangles your life. And it follows you and it locks your hands. It changes your speech, the way you think and the way you do things. That's what sin does. And it captures you to believe other things are more important than what is important, what God has said. It takes you into exile. And runs your life. Hallelujah. But thank God for his grace. Because sin has been conquered. Hallelujah. I've also picked up from this scripture. That God's providence. I mean God's prophecy and providence is decisive. God has mentioned to these people. Before they were even taken, they even arrived in the land of Israel, in Canaan. He tells them that if you mingle with other gods, if you leave my instruction, you'll fall into the trap of sinning against me. And if you do that, this is what I will do. And he's showing us signs. There are many times that they sinned, he punished them, and they corrected their way during the time of, of Moses, during the time of Joshua, and even during the time of Samuel, King Samuel, I mean a prophet Samuel, and even the king Saul, God showed them that it is important not to swerve out of my instruction. And he sends prophets to them 
to warn them that if you do this, this will happen. If you do this, this will happen. And he waits, God waits for them. They repent. He tells them that if you repent and you see that he forgives them, he heals their land, and they know. But this particular time, when they were taken into captives, God was fed up with them. They were just so much. This is when the time when the kings, their kings and the people had started sacrificing their children. God's prophecy is decisive. When Jeremiah was telling them 200 years ago, before, or let me say 130 years before, they took it like it has been said many times. Why should it be different this time? And it's so amazing that this is how we actually react or behave about God. And uh, we call to ourselves a lot of issues. In the book of Isaiah, God says, chapter, Isaiah chapter 46, verse 8 to 11, God says, I will accomplish all my purpose. In the, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 8, verse 5 to 10, Though it says that God will show his decision and will accomplish, he will make his decisions. Though the processes will be conditional to give you two options. If you do this, this is what I'll do. If you do this, this is what I'll do. It really happens. And there are grave consequences for ignoring God's word or God's instruction. This is, tantal, this is similar to sin. But sometimes we may choose not to sin, but just to ignore God's voice. This is also tantamount to one sinning. He had told them not to marry foreign wives, and they did. When you read the book of Romans chapter 6 verse 20, it says the wages of sin is death. And thank God that when we sin, he forgives us. But one other lesson that I've picked here is God's ways are mysterious. When God can intervene to the prayers of the people of Israel to set them free from the bondage in exile, he touches a king who is not told in the book, in the scripture, to be following after the precepts of God but he is touched to release them back to their land. I know that this time these people of Israel were peasants. They didn't look like a nation. They just looked like ordinary people that were aimless. So the king, there were no value from them. They had no value at all. That's why the king released them back to their land. After all, what help do they give to us? Let them go back to their land. That's what sin can do to you. It can push you to valuelessness. But it works in mysterious ways. It can intervene into your life and change circumstances. Even when the people that were there in the land of the Israelites were writing against them when they were rebuilding, even when they were writing to actually push down and to tarnish their, their effort, God still raised other kings. God still raised other people. 
God works in mysterious ways. I don't have many more observations that I want to bring to you. But I just want you to stay reminded that this God that we we serve is serious. He is serious. When you do good, he is serious. When you do wrong, he is also, also serious. So the honor is upon you to make a decision. What do you really want to do? I wanted to cite the times that we are living in. I often discuss with my friend, my wife. The, it's perilous times in the true sense. Everybody is standing up to fight the church. If you follow the media, the news these days, there's a lot happening against Christians, against the kingdom, I mean, against churches, against people, particular people. The devil is just fighting. And it's a very tactful, tactful way of getting people to change their minds and position about their relationship with God. Some will be discouraged. Others will be disappointed. Others will start uh, turning against and uh, ridiculing Christianity. It's a purpose. So the devil is picking the highest and hitting them so that the weakest will collapse on them all on their own. God is serious. I just want to plead with the Church of Christ these days that even such, even when such is happening across the world, let's take God serious. God has evidence given to us that He is real. And he has said that in the end times, many's love will grow cold. And this is exactly what the enemy is trying to do. Let us hold on. I've said before, I've said it before, signs are there. We are almost gone to ring those shining bells. We are almost gone. It's just a matter of few events. Then we are gone. Then we are gone back to heaven. Hold on unto Christ. Hallelujah. May God bless the reading of his word today. May he bless you. Hallelujah. Well, that's all we had for you today. I trust the word of God has ministered to you. Now you understand the importance of trusting God. Our God never leaves us alone and he will always give us a victory. I trust the message has changed you and has made you grow in your faith and in trust in God. God willing, let's meet next time and goodbye.